Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Ian Patrick, who is the Chief Investment Officer of the Australian Retirement Trust. Ian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Vota. Nice of you to have me on. Thanks for making the time. So can we talk a little bit about how it all started and um, how you came to Australia? Because you're originally from South Africa, and I think um, in 1999 you joined Mercer. What brought you here? What brought my wife and I here, because we moved together at the time, was uh, a fundamental decision to pursue what we perceived to be a safer lifestyle. Um, Our experience was we'd go overseas on holiday, and we were fortunate to do that from Johannesburg, and you'd notice the difference of not consciously being aware of your surroundings every second of the day. And uh, at that time, I think my wife, while she wouldn't have said it, was thinking about starting a family and safety was quite important to her. And so we made a mutual decision to come to Australia or to look abroad and Australia became the obvious choice. Yeah, yeah. So why Australia and not any other country? Yeah, it's a good question because I did possibly have, through my work at that time, better contacts in the US for roles. Um, Lynn wasn't particularly keen on the US, to be frank. And when we looked at the UK, we reached this decision with apologies to all residents of the UK that we'd probably be looking for another destination four or five years in, given um, the weather. (laughs) Yes, well, being Dutch, I know all about the weather. I'm enjoying it much more here. Um, So you spent then three years with Mercer, and after that you you joined Jana, where you spent a significant time. I think it was almost uh, more than more than thirteen years, and uh, basically climbing up from consultant to become the chief executive officer. How did that journey sort of develop? As I um, have experienced careers in general, it's a case of utilizing the opportunities you have and the uh, exposures you have, and ensuring that you make the most of those and deliver, let's call it honestly and authentically, although those are both somewhat overused words, to that opportunity. And then I've been fortunate enough that good organisations allow doors to open for you. And so the move at Jhana was a combination of the leadership at the time um, recognising perhaps what I had to to offer 
and some good clients who obviously supported my efforts in working for them in spreading the word. Yeah. So from a chief executive role now to a chief investment role or, or um, when you joined Sun Super, the, the predecessor of Australian Retirement Trust, what sort of prompted that move? Was there a desire to get back into investments more? It was possibly two primary things. One was a desire to get closer to the end customer. Now, that sounds a little bit odd, but when you are advising owners of assets, you're one step removed from the actual end beneficiary of of the advice you're giving. And whilst that's not hugely problematic, there was a deep desire to get closer to that mission, if, if I can describe it that way. And then the second aspect was to focus on a single investment challenge. That was probably the harder decision to make because one of the great things about being in consulting is that you have a multitude of investment challenges to think through and provide advice in relation to. I felt that was always a little bit of um, two layers deep in the onion, not all the way to the core. And I was feeling a need to get a little bit closer to the core. So it's also a sort of an element where you all play for the same team in there? It is, although I would never, in saying that, um, undermine how cohesive and focused the JANA team was. The broad um, objective of delivering well to a whole host of beneficiaries, whether they be super or charity or other forms of beneficiaries, that was always very central at JANA. So I I wouldn't remove the cohesiveness of the team. Fair enough. So... Australian Retirement Trust um, is, is still more or less in the midst of, uh, of the merger between QSuper and SunSuper. We spoke a little bit in the past um, for, for an article about some of the areas where you can see some uh, efficiencies. I think there were some in Australian equity, some in more uh, uh, sustainable investment type of thing. But where, where are you in terms of, of the merger? What, what is sort of the main uh, things that are left to do? There's always stuff left to do, which is the um, challenging part, I think, of of a a big organisation that needs to regularly or continuously learn and evolve. But in terms of the merger specifically, the path to integration and, and true unification of one art has a whole host of issues uh, along the way. Some Um, quite soft and some quite hard. And in terms of objective issues, getting to one custodian is absolutely key because it enables a whole host of other um, achievements, including, for instance, the harmonisation of the investment menu, the combination of the underlying pools of real estate and infrastructure and private equity assets, uh, efficiencies in unit pricing and, and middle office processing, all kinds of things flow from that. So We will get to it in 2023, and it will be quite transformative in the sense of liberating processes and policies, truly moving from a number of twos to one. On the softer side, fully integrating a team takes time. Cultures are important and have been instrumental in delivering success, and whilst nobody would 
um, hold any doubt that we need to arrive at an art culture, not one of the heritage cultures. Those changes take time, and they take time when you're in different geographies. They take time when you're running those legacy uh, setups of two custodians, etc. And we continually work at building the art culture, but that takes time. And cultures don't stand still, as you and I both know. So no. there will always be work to do. I'm glad to hear you say art, because uh, when I uh, wrote it once, they say, no, it's A-R-T, don't, don't call it art. But we're now allowed to call it art? We're instructed to call it art. Oh. Now, my branding colleagues may be um, a little bit perturbed by me saying we're instructed. No, the, the desire is to call it either the full name, Australian Retirement Trust, or art. And ART as an acronym has fallen by the wayside. I think a lot of us were originally sensitive to using art because it could be fluffy, it could be trademarked, it could be anything. But right now, everybody's comfortable with either the full Australian Retirement Trust or art. I'm glad because I think it's, it's great to call it art. Um, so... When we look at the uh, the merger, I think when we spoke earlier about the merger, I was sort of interested in the fact that when you actually sign sort of the memorandum of, of understanding, there's a whole bunch of um, hurdles in place that allow you or don't allow you to look at the investments in case the merger doesn't go ahead. Um, so you sort of go not blind, but but with very limited view into the merger. How is that sort of now penned out that you basically have, you know, access to all the books and see what's there? Has that been sort of a, 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 a relief? Has it facilitated the process? Or, or um, do you then just get a sense of the, the inherent complexity of, of the portfolios? I think the benefits of broad disclosure, portfolio holdings disclosure, the benefits of conversations all the way through the process in the lead up to SFT gave a sense of the nature of the portfolios. The things that were precluded from discussion were terms and conditions. Yep. What, what were the specific terms of a mandate? What were the specific fee and other conditions attached to that mandate? And then, of course, some of the specific IP, if I can call it that, that went into portfolio construction. Now, I don't want to overplay the last, because I, I think that can be overdone. So there was a very good sense of the respective portfolios, and there had been work done on assessing the due investment due diligence and operational due diligence processes followed by each organization so that the respective boards of trustees could get a level of comfort mm. with the fact that they were joining a an organization that had stewarded its investments well and had fulfilled all the required, let's call it, uh, processes of a large organization. So once we came to the um, merger date on the 28th of February, there weren't fundamental issues to learn. The passage from there was much more about thinking through the longer term let's call it three-year pathway to harmonizing underlying portfolios. How do you bring together two infrastructure portfolios that had had different objectives, different portfolio construction overlays, and do it in a way that harnessed 
the benefits of both portfolios for all future members, but that the points of transition were done in an equitable and transparent way to all layers of governance because it's not only the members' best interests at the point of merger, it's members' best interests at all future stages as you start to integrate. So those have been the bigger considerations, arriving at the harmonised strategy, thinking through the transition elements to that harmonised strategy and the like. And it's also well known that um, QSuper had quite a, in the beginning, a bit of a different investment approach. Um, it's been called risk parity, although I don't think they use that term, um, compared to, to SunSuper's approach. And, and at the same time, we've seen sort of this big change in, in, in the investment environment uh, with where rates are going. Can you tell me a little bit about how those two uh, different philosophies uh, align? Align is an interesting word from the point of view that it could imply um, directly equivalent or, or similar. And the way that it's been approached in art since pre-merger has been to determine a common philosophy. So very early on, the board decided to establish a common investment philosophy. How it plays out in practice is that there are a number of investment principles. There's some core investment principles, there's some member principles, and then there's some business principles. And those come together as the investment philosophy. Those guide whichever approach is being um, exercised at any one point in time. And what is then core to exercise of the approach is two things. One is to reflect the characteristics of the cohorts for which the product that using a particular approach um, support. And the second is to ensure that any transition to or any modification of the approach is both communicated well to those making the decisions, the board and the investment committee, and particularly to the members. I'm a big believer that there's no one solution to any investment problem. What the risk-balanced approach, as it's referred to, has sought to do is establish a portfolio that will deliver the return objective over time, but do so in a way where drawdowns in um, equity market downturns are reduced or minimised so that the member gets an overall smoother ride, lower volatility of outcomes through time. The converse, the approach that is more peer aware, I think you'd call it, is to build a portfolio that will maintain healthy peer relative returns through a, a normal cycle, five to seven years. And in so doing, it is not going to run the differentiated uh, portfolio construction that the risk balanced approach will. But both reflect the philosophy of diversification, particularly through uh, meaningful allocations to unlisted assets the uh, in integration of ESG, given that we firm believers that sustainable practices will enhance future returns and manage risk. And last but not least, 
that risk management can be both return enhancing and uh, downside reducing. And all portfolio construction uh, reflects that. So you're sort of hashing out a, a common philosophy in terms of the investments. Um, and at the same time, we've got sort of this regulatory drive going on where uh, your future su- your super comes in, there's a performance test that comes in. Um, did that sort of throw a spanner in the works or is there just one more thing that you take along in the process? I think it's much more of the latter. I think it's one more thing you take along in the process. I am a firm believer that at the end of the day, the performance test has thrown a spotlight on active risk management. Fundamentally, enhancing the um, considerations for active risk management is a good thing how one incorporates that into portfolio construction decisions with all the other uh, objectives or constraints that sit alongside it, everything from being cost efficient to delivering a real return objective, maybe a peer aware objective. All of those things should triangulate and end up with a portfolio where the extent of active risk aims to deliver on those objectives, but also is taken in a way that is conscious of a series of risks, one of which is quite substantial in that failing the performance test is almost an existential question. So you cannot wish it away. Mm. It is there. And I think all of us being held to account on some measure of performance is a no-brainer. We are stewarding... um, Act, uh, members' money at the end of the day. So what what have I really said? I said it's there, it features in active risk, but if one is true to the mission of delivering retirement outcomes, that's what we're supposed to do. Take active risk and deliver an outcome relative to that active risk. Yeah, yeah. So... I want to get your ideas as well a little bit about sort of the structure of the superannuation industry because uh, the merger uh, makes a rather large fund and I understand that there are some projections that say uh, over the next decade uh, art will grow to almost a trillion dollars. How do you see that changing for the organisation in terms of your role as, as a CIO but also in terms of what you can do as a fund in terms of the investment? So... I mean, at the moment, there's, there's sort of a, a, a large home bias, which I think, you know, will become more problematic if we have a couple of trillion dollar super funds uh, investing all in the Australian market. How do you see some of these changes play out? I think I'll take the two in turn because they're quite different. I'll start with the, let's call it the impact of scale on an asset owner. There's certainly aspects of diseconomies of scale, and you've highlighted one which is, for instance, active Australian equities, the capacity to achieve alpha in Australian equities will be perhaps increasingly challenged. I I think the jury is out in some respects because the top 50 or the top 100 and the capacity to eke out incremental returns, I I think, persists through time, but certainly in small caps, the capacity to 
um, gain a, an exposure that will be meaningful to the fund in terms of uh, access to alpha, that will be challenged through time, I believe. So there are diseconomies of scale. Some might argue there are other investment opportunities that are diminished, perhaps in smaller uh, sectors of, of the property market, um, domestically, etc. That's possible. But I think those diseconomies are significantly outweighed by the benefits of scale. And some of those benefits are increased ticket size in whatever unlisted asset class you happen to be talking about, and the ability, if it's an, an asset, a direct acquisition, the ability to hold additional board seats and therefore exert more control and as a consequence deliver stronger operational performance perhaps, which ultimately is alpha from those unlisted assets, all the way through to uh, influencing the terms on a desirable private equity fund. I think as a large investor write, writing a larger ticket size, you certainly can extract uh, added value, whether that's operational alpha or let's call it terms alpha, fee alpha, because at the end of the day, reduced fees are enhanced return, all other things mm -hmm. being equal. Yeah. I think the other advantage of scale is in relation to the pursuit of um, a myriad of strategies that just aren't available to smaller funds. Within that, I'd include uh, aspects of liquidity provision. At the end of the day, we can be meaningful liquidity providers in times of tight liquidity to everybody from a, a bank to another asset owner who doesn't have the long-term surety of a contribution flow. And that offers advantages. Mm -hmm. You have to be set up to exploit them. And then there's the capacity, if we reflect currently on something like the housing accord, to play a role in, let's call it building out new opportunity sets. You have to have scale and presence to influence the manner in which those arrangements are stood up, whether it's equity or debt, what kind of protections are provided uh, through risk sharing, et cetera, et cetera. If you're not big and you don't have a seat at the table, that doesn't transpire. So I, th I think the economies of uh, scale or the advantages of scale outweigh the diseconomies. That's the, let's call it size from a fund point of view. From a CIO point of view, I think it's largely that CIOs become more and more like the CEO of an investment management business. The capacity for a CIO to directly influence investment decisions other, other than through driving really effective team governance, I think is um, one of the things that's lost. A small team in a, in a medium-sized fund of 10 or 15 people, the CIO can be directionally and directly influential in investment decisions. I think in a large fund that becomes less and less true. Yeah, if if we come back to sort of that um, the the sc the scale question, I, I got a little bit of a sense as well that you that you see 
perhaps more of a, a drift towards unlisted assets and, and almost like a little bit of the flavor of the Canadian model there. Is that right? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I don't think it tends to the Canadian model. And the primary reason is however well we do, we do live in an environment where members have the choice to either switch between options overnight or alternatively move their money to an alternative fund overnight. Each of those is an, is an liquidity event for the member, but it is a transformation internally of liquidity from one pot to another pot in the fund. And that does put, in my mind, an upper limit on the extent of illiquidity that a fund, a large public offer fund like ART or any of the others of our peers can take on. What that number is, is I think open to debate, but there is an upside limit to it. And as a consequence, some of the really long-term Canadian funds with truly long-term liabilities, I think will always have net-net more illiquidity than an Australian superannuation fund. The other difference with the Canadian model is um, the Canadians tend to manage quite a bit in-house as well. And I think in the past we've spoken about this topic and and you're not too keen on on bringing a lot in-house. Can you tell us a bit why? The principally two reasons, I'd say, both come from um, the legacy of where QSuper and SunSuper respectively came from. Um, One of those is a fundamental test that internalization needs to deliver the same net return outcome. So yes, you can bring down fees, but if the net return outcome is uh, diminished relative to the alternative of external management, then you have to question, is that in the best financial interest to members? Now, future returns are not assured. So the next stage question becomes, well, what would be required to deliver that same net return? And to me, that says you have to be able through time to continuously retain a team of the best quality investors you can find in the globe, because that's the alternative. Going externally, in theory, gives you access to teams of the highest quality provided you can form those relationships and align interests. And align interest is tough because there is always a principal agent issue, but I'd argue that some of that principal agent issue exists in the fund anyway. So it's that that test about can I sustainably employ, retain and um, align culturally an internal team that delivers the same net returns. That's that's the one. The second is we are going through transformation. As I mentioned right at the start, harmonizing two portfolios, uh, building the art culture, extending our investment in technology to serve the, uh, the two teams in a consistent way. All of those things are an element of change that I think if you overlaid further change of internalizing teams 
could really challenge the fabric of the team and could really challenge the extent of capacity and support services because you being on an internal equities team, you're making demands of IT people, of other change people at a time when the organisation is going through uh, some level of transformation. And so I have used this analogy, it's a little bit tortured, is that um, before you run the 800 metres, make sure that you're up to scratch for the 400 metres because um, one, speciality is hard enough. Um, Two, is really tough. Do I get a little bit of a sense though that it's never say never? There might be at some point in the future where it makes more sense? Uh, I think your sense is right and this the same would be true to give you a little bit of insight into what transpired in Sun Super, which I'm obviously familiar with, is that uh, we undertook an extensive exercise in uh, 2020 just at the time merger was becoming real. It, the exercise was already in train and then the merger landed to examine what the future investment model might be for a $50 billion fund that could end up at $150 billion. And our conclusion then was not dissimilar in that there was an investment to be made in a number of initiatives over a three-year horizon to strengthen the base and that we'd re-examine the question at the three-year three-year horizon. I think you're hearing, without me saying it explicitly, something similar in that integration is an 18-month to three-year journey. During that time, we will continue to evaluate where we were at on the question of internalization. And we may take a bolder step in three years' time. Having said all of that, there are things that are strategically important to internalize um, aspects of rebalancing, currency hedging, um, exposure management from a liquidity point of view, etc. Those are all critically important functions, some of which in mid-size or smaller funds or even in the case of Sun Super were historically outsourced to a level those will increasingly become internalized because they are crucial to the operation of the fund as opposed to um, origination of an infrastructure asset where there may well be better qualified people to do that. Yeah, yeah. So it's also horses for courses in in that sense. Um, Now, you've mentioned the term uh, liquidity a couple of times and um, we you know, just had the the, uh, the pandemic and we saw the early release and you've sort of talked a little bit about the liquidity waterfall that um, you had to put in place at a relatively short notice. Um, so we've sort of covered that off in an article previously. Can you tell us a little bit about um, other learnings from the pandemic where um, maybe it challenged your existing ideas about uh, um, the investment strategy or how the influence of, of, of um, you know, macro effects on it? I'll speak more specifically to our experience, and I, I have to reflect on Sun Super because that was the experience I lived through day to day at that time, and uh, with, you know, all apologies to my uh, legacy Q Super con- uh, colleagues. 
the thing that particularly uh, stood out for us in that period was how all uh, strategies correlated purely, uh, poorly, sorry. And that is, there was no contribution, a diversifying contribution from alpha in any of the asset classes. Alpha was correlated with markets. There was no defensiveness in our unlisted assets, which had typically been defensive in the face of a downturn. Now, that's hardly surprising given the nature of the economic full stop that was put on a range of sectors at that particular point in time. But notwithstanding that, it does cause you to look at the range of scenarios that you take into account in uh, evaluating a strategy and expand that range of scenarios to more extreme events like the entire shutdown of the transport industry for a short period and the impact that that has, yes. particularly immediately, but then over the intermediate term. So that was probably the biggest takeaway in addition to liquidity. It did cause us at the time to reevaluate the scenarios, reevaluate the role of both sovereign bonds and currency in terms of defensive exposures. And some of that is mirrored equally on the legacy Q super side, in fact. So are two crises ever exactly the same? No. But will those lessons stand us in good stead? Absolutely. And particularly, we think um, the changes we made to portfolios around fixed interest or more uh, sovereign fixed interest or more generally defensive exposures were proven to be beneficial in the most recent uh, concerns around inflation. Yeah. I want to finish up with uh, looking a little bit at the energy transition and decarbonisation. It's, it's a big theme um, you hear a lot about, but I know that at Su- when I was still Sun Super, you've put some benchmarks in place that were low carbon benchmarks. And so you sort of started that, that move towards uh, lower carbon portfolios. At the same time, we, we sort of saw this year um, with the invasion of Ukraine that, that the energy sector um, came back, which, you know, saw value come back. And that's sort of opposite towards the decarbonization trend. Um, how do you look uh, sort of at this topic now? Do you, are you aware of sort of the skews that decarbonization can bring to a portfolio? Or do you look at it more as, well, this is a long-term trend, a path that we set upon and these are just blips along the way. Blips might be slightly understating it from from my perspective, but I think the point that you're making there is that within the transition, it will not be linear and we will have periods where carbon emissions could go up in the portfolio and in the real world, but that fundamentally we're on a pathway to transition, as tricky as COP27 was and as um, astounding as it may be right now that corporates seem to be doing more than than governments, and I hesitate to say that at some level, but that's the way it would be. It's, it's not linear, but we're on the transition to a lower emission world. 
And so portfolios should align with that. But I'll add that it's not only sufficient for portfolios to align with a predicted pathway. That will take us to a point that's aligned with general, um, let's call it economy-wide emissions. Most would recognise that's not sufficient and that more needs to be done around real-world emissions. And so investing more proactively in the transition, including solutions for uh, a lower-carbon environment, I think will become increasingly important and that will increase active risk relative to market-defined benchmarks because the market will move at the market's pace to lower trend, uh, lower carbon, but portfolios will need to move somewhat more aggressively if we're genuinely going to achieve our targets and not only through offsets. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Ian, thank you very much for your time. It was great having you on the show. Yeah, thanks very much, Vota. It's been good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.